Please turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. And I'll be reading verses 8 through 11. Um, excuse me, 1 through 11. Chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus, uh, hear the word of God. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger, as though he didn't hear them. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning from the oldest even to the youngest. And Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, Where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Amen. Amen. Uh, This passage emphasizes uh, one particular truth. And it is that mercy triumphs over justice. And we'll set that in its context properly. But that's what we'll see in this particular passage. Mercy triumphs over justice. Now look at the setting. The setting. Jesus is teaching at the temple after he had spent the night at the Mount of Olives. And remember all that happened before. Right, You have uh, um, the authorities wanting to capture Jesus because of what he said. Even, even some of the crowd wanted to lay hands on him, but they were not able because it was not his time yet. And when the chapter ends, chapter 7, right at the end, remember what Nicodemus says. Does your own law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he is doing? And there, of course, that principle that Jesus stated earlier on where he says in chapter 7, verse 24, do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. That principle, of course, comes into play at the end of John chapter 7 when Nicodemus says these words in verse 50. 
But then it also comes to play in chapter 8 in this interaction with the woman. That righteous judgment must be used. So we see the connection there between these two chapters. Now, many, uh, as we talked about in our class, you know, some of your uh, Sunday school class, some of your Bibles have a little note in there that says that this passage doesn't belong in the New Testament because it's not in the original text, so on and so forth. But we dealt with some of that in Sunday school last week. We'll deal more next week. Here, at the beginning of this sermon, I just want to show you the connections in the text itself. That if this wasn't here... uh, this section of John would make no sense. So there's a connection between just judgment there. Next, if you go straight from chapter 7, verse 52, to chapter 8, verse 12, you can try that and try to read that. That's it. It says, then, or excuse me, verse 52, they answered and said to him, are you also from Galilee? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen from Galilee. And then you jump to verse 12. Then spoke Jesus to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. <laughs> you know, like Jesus doesn't know how to make conversation, you know. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't flow well. It really just doesn't, doesn't read well. It's not natural. It's not a smooth reading. Second, if you leave these verses out, and you start with verse 12, there are several questions that um, you can't answer, really. Uh, Then spoke Jesus. When? Because you have to remember, he's not anywhere in verses, uh, really verses 40 through 52. He's not speaking to anybody. He was just at the temple standing, declaring the truth of God. Then, in verse 12, it says, uh, in verse 12, it says again, then spoke Jesus to them again, saying, to whom? To whom was he saying this? Because as you get into the discussion at verse 13, the Pharisees are there. And before that, he was speaking in the temple, and the Pharisees weren't there. So how could he be saying this to them again? Now, if verses 11 through, excuse me, 1 through 11 are there, he had just been speaking to the Pharisees and the scribes. So he addresses them again. Now look at verse 13. The Pharisees and the scribes, therefore, said to him, if verses 11 and following are missing, where do the Pharisees come from? So again, besides some of the more theological and textual issues that we're going to read in Sunday school, you also have these issues of the flow of the passage. It really doesn't make any sense if you remove uh, really verse 53 through verse 11, 753 through 811, the setting, it makes no sense. So Jesus enters the temple, uh, or Jesus goes, uh, excuse me, verse 53, and there, and everyone went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Now early in the morning, he came again into the temple, 
And all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. That's, that's the setting. That's what's going on. Jesus, now after spending the night at the Mount of Olives, he comes to the temple. He sits. The people come, and he begins to teach them. Note the subtle contrast here with verse 53. Everybody goes to their house, but where does Jesus go? He had no home. He had nowhere to lay his head. It's a real subtle contrast, but, it, but, it's, but it's there. And there was probably nobody, and you think about it, they're celebrating the Feast of Booths. There's all these booths outdoors. Somebody could have easily said to him, hey, you know, spend the night here with us. But uh, the picture that John paints in the other Gospels really is that Jesus really did not have any friends in Jerusalem. There was nobody to show him any kind of kindness or courteousness. And maybe they didn't even have enough courage to have him stay with them because of what might have happened. So he goes off by himself. This is, these are hints in the gospel that show you what is meant by Christ's humiliation. When he stepped down from heaven and he took upon himself the form of a man, he didn't dwell in temples and palaces being served as a king. He came to serve the people. He came to be a servant. He was as Isaiah calls him, the suffering servant. So he suffered even physical needs that he might be able to minister to us. Now, you see his faithfulness, his uh, friendliness, and his fearlessness. Friendliness is kind of a trite word. What I'm thinking is that he was so approachable that the people come to him. Noted in the passage, know his faithfulness. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. They were just seeking to arrest him. But this is why he came. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom. That's what he says in Luke 4.43. That's why he came. This is, this is the reason I came, that I might preach and teach to the people the gospel of the kingdom. And he is faithful to that calling. So as soon as he is able, he arrives at the temple. And he's probably at the outside court of the temple where people would gather uh, to really to, to discuss theology, to learn from rabbis. And he comes again there. He comes again to teach the people. And they can approach him easily. As soon as he gets there, they all come to him. I remember what they had been previously saying about him, um, things like this. No man ever spoke like this man. They were taken back by him. And even with regards to his doctrine, in verse 15, they said, how does this man know letters? having never studied. 
So his teaching had a grip upon them. So when they see him coming into the temple, the people gather to him, his friendliness. In, Mark, uh, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 11, um, the scribes ask this question. The scribes and the Pharisees ask Jesus' disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered, he says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So Jesus constantly put himself in, position, in a position where he can reach sinners, those who would listen, those who would hear him. Yet note his fearlessness. He knew his hour had not yet come. In John 7, uh, 6, Jesus says to his, disciples, to his brothers, my time has not yet come. They were looking for him. They wanted to arrest him. Remember the words of the Pharisees. Why have you not brought this man? And even the crowd, some of them wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. And Jesus knows all of this is going on. But he continues. Fearless, friendly, faithful. In Luke 9.51, we hear this. And it came to pass, when the time had come, that he should be received up, he steadfast set his face to go to Jerusalem. Some, some translations, I think the King James older ones, it says he set his face like a flint. And that expression means, of course, that he would not be deterred from going to Jerusalem to be crucified there. And this was his attitude. So he comes into the temple. This is the Jesus that we must fix our minds and hearts upon. You know, the, the Jesus in popular Christianity and in, uh, you know, popular culture is not the Jesus of the Bible, right? And even the Jesus of the fundamentalists, you know, the bad fundamentalists, right? That, uh, um, you know, Westboro Baptist kind of fundamentalist that hates everybody, <laughs> right? That Jesus. He's, he's not, he, that Jesus is not a very popular Jesus, but some people... Believe in a Jesus like that. But the Jesus of the Bible uh, came into the, into the world as a faithful servant to serve his Father and to serve humanity by declaring the truth of God. And he was uh, friendly. He was uh, extremely approachable whenever sinners came to him. Think, he touched lepers, not leopards, <laughs> lepers. He touched lepers, right? Uh, because that's, that's why he came into the world. He came to serve. And he was fearless. And that is the Savior that we must fix our minds on. We, we, we must remember that we serve a faithful Savior, a, a Savior who is approachable. Even now we can come to him and he can, uh, he can understand us because he suffered like we suffered. And he is still fearless. And whenever we fear, we're having uh, you know, anxiety and heart palpitations, we can come uh, to him. But as he's sitting there, the scribes and the Pharisees 
bring a woman to him. And this woman is caught in adultery. So the, 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 the picture that John paints for us is that this woman was actually committing adultery. Now think of the context. There's a huge, huge feast going on. People are sleeping outside in tents. It's like camping, right? So there's partying, people staying up all hours of the night. And, right, it's almost like the perfect setting for something like this to happen. And adultery, of course, uh, in the Bible would constitute that this woman was married and she slept with a man. Either a married man, not married man, doesn't matter. She commits adultery. And when they had her in the midst, and now remember, Jesus is sitting. There's a crowd of people listening to him. The Pharisees and the scribes see the perfect opportunity. They take a woman and they bring her. So you have the Pharisees on one side, Jesus and the woman, and then the crowds that he was teaching. And she's in the middle there with, uh, with Jesus. They say to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? The, the scribes, this is the first and last time they come up in the Gospel of John. And the way that Luke refers to the scribes, he calls them lawyers or teachers of the law. And this really was their primary function uh, in, among the Jewish people. They were interpreters of the Jewish law. And they were always, always the scribes were always critical of Jesus' ministry. They were always the, those accusing him of violating the law on multiple occasions. So throughout the Gospels, when accusations are hurled at Jesus about some point of the law that he broke or some tradition, it was the scribes who were accusing him. And the scribes really arose, uh, they, essentially in the Old Testament, they were just like secretaries. And what they would do was just record um, day-to-day activities, events. Eventually they began to record what the prophets were saying. And then it became sort of an official office during the time of their Babylonian captivity and Ezra comes out of captivity and he is a scribe in the true and uh, to you know use a, a made-up word in the goodest sense <clears throat> he's a scribe he is one who knows the law he can teach the law and he can apply the law and at the end of the Old Testament it was a very prestigious office those who who were uh, scribes they didn't necessarily come from a priestly family or from a uh, wealthy family but the function that they had among the people was so prestigious that they became a class. And at some point they merged together with the Pharisees. So now you have these, uh, this class of, um, of minister or this particular office among the people that is tied to the religious custom of the Pharisees. And they are men who do their due diligence when it comes to studying the scriptures. <clears throat> But when you mix those two things, um, you get some bad effects. So for example, when Jesus forgives um, the paralytic man's sins in Matthew chapter 9, in Matthew chapter 9, verse 1, they say this, 
verse in verse 3. This man blasphemes because he's forgiving sins. <clears throat> With regards to Sabbath observances or healings, and when D- Jesus does works on the Sabbaths, they're the ones who are calling Jesus out and saying that he's the one sinning. So, for example, in Luke chapter 6, verse 7, the scribes and the Pharisees watch Jesus closely, whether he would heal on the Sabbath that they might find an accusation against him. And this is why they bring the woman. They're testing him and they want to accuse him, right? So the Pharisees are there and they have the scribes. And the people are there so that when Jesus trips trips up, doesn't make the right decision, the scribe can be there to hurl an accusation. For not following the ceremonial worship in Mark chapter 7, those are the scribes also. The scribes ask, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition? Mark chapter 7, verse 5. And even when it came to the issue of fasting, they were there. In uh, Luke 5, verse 33, then they... If you look back at verse 30, as described in the Pharisees, said to him, why, does the, why do the disciples of John fast often and make prayers, and likewise those of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink? And so this particular class of, um, the, of Pharisee, really the scribes, were nitpicky about the law. So now they come and they bring this woman. And explicitly to test him and to accuse him. Now, of course, adultery was a very grave sin. It's the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. The penalty for committing adultery was death. In Leviticus 20, verse 10, note, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife, he who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. So now think about our passage, though. There's somebody missing. Where's the adulterer? Right? It takes two to tango, <laughs> as they say. Right? <laughs> Now, Deuteronomy 17 also, Deuteronomy 17, 6 through 7 says, whoever is deserving of death shall be put to death on the testimony of two or three witnesses. He shall not be put to death on the testimony of one witness. The hands of the witnesses shall be the first against him to put him to death. And afterwards, the hands of all the people. You, so you shall put away the evil from among you. And this is an issue that I don't think the commentators don't address this, but, but no, they say that they caught her in adultery in the very act. The woman in essence, she doesn't openly confess that she committed the sin, but she does confess in, in a sense that she committed the sin because Jesus asked her, who is here to accuse you? And she says, no one. And then he says, I don't accuse you either. Just don't continue sinning. So more than likely, she did commit the sin, but they didn't bring forward any witnesses. They just said, hey, we caught her doing this. Who? And where's the fella? 
Where's the man? So, um, the, uh, um, the punishment for adultery was death. And if she had committed adultery, and if there had been witnesses, this woman and the man rightfully should have been stoned. You, you can't get so. And what Jesus is doing here is Jesus is not saying the law is too harsh. So we're going to do something different. That's not Jesus' point here. But this is something that, and of course we get this from the text. They exposed this woman's sin to test and accuse Jesus, not because they cared about righteousness and justice. You see? The issue for them wasn't she's sinning and we've got to keep the law. No. Oh, this is a perfect test case. We just caught this woman committing adultery. Let's not bring the guy. Let's not bring any witnesses. Let's see what Jesus does. And then we'll accuse him. Right? If Jesus, and who knows what was going on in their mind. Maybe like if Jesus says, stoner. Well, the, husband, the man's not here. She had seven, you know, they'd think of some trick. Or if he says, well, the man's not here, show mercy. Ah, but so you're con- contradicting the law? Who knows what they were thinking. But there were several issues with the way that this is presented to Jesus. Either way, what they're doing in exposing this woman like this is, is completely unjust. It's not righteous. This is not a fair trial. And something else that we have to, that you have to pick up on is this, is that Jesus had no formal office to, do, to make this verdict. He didn't have the office to make this verdict. What they're doing is solely trying to test him and accuse him, and they will degrade and embarrass anybody they have to to make their point, to get what they want. So there is really no justice for this woman. And, uh, and having actually sinned, the law had to be applied, yet what they do is they use this opportunity to, to test Jesus, and they degrade this woman publicly to do it. So they sin against her. But think about this. Who do they want to test and accuse? Their Savior. You think of their perversity, right? That they would use the law to try to accuse the only person who can save them from the penalty of the law. They use the truth of God really to promote falsehood against truth itself. Their corrupt hearts plotted, schemed, and devised so that they could trick Jesus. And they do this by sinning against this woman. And his answer, Jesus' answer, keeps, uh, it shows his righteousness and his gentleness. But first note what he does. He stoops down. So he's sitting anyways, 
So possibly he hunches himself over. And what does he do? He writes on the ground. We don't know what he wrote on, on the ground, okay? You read commentaries and you hear preachers and they invent all kinds of stuff. He wrote the commandment. He wrote their sins. He, we don't know. Basically, uh, I think this, uh, look at the end of verse 6. The end of verse, as though he did not hear. He was ignoring them, right? It's the modern equivalent of having your ear pods in but off and walking around so that nobody says anything to you, right? You know, you got your, your headphones on. They're not on. You have them on your head. And when people try to say something to you, you just keep walking. That's essentially what he was doing, right? Or when you're on your phone, you're not really doing anything. That's what Jesus, Jesus was ignoring them. One, the, the reason he's ignoring them, of course, is because he knows their heart. Secondly, he's in the middle of teaching the people. There's something going on. He's at the temple, right? And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. And he's declaring the good news of that covenant to the people. They're sitting there listening to him. And these Pharisees and scribes, you know, they come. You could probably picture them, you know, rubbing their hands. Oh, we got them good now. And they bring this poor woman who had already sinned, been exposed. They bring this poor woman, throw her on the floor in front of him and says, hey, what, what should we do? So he ignores them. <clears throat> Calvin wrote this uh, as by means of application. He says, Thus in the present day, when Satan attempts by various methods to draw us aside from the right way of teaching, we ought disdainfully to pass by many things which he holds out to us. If godly teachers be laboriously, laboriously employed in examining each of those petty and unnecessary distractions, they will begin to weave Penelope's web. You know what Penelope's web is? You know what Penelope is? Well, anyway, Penelope is an ancient figure, uh, Greece, and uh, she had a husband, right, who went off to war, and what, she had a bunch of suitors, very attractive, godly, oh, not godly, but very attractive ladies. She had a lot of suitors, right? A lot of guys were constantly coming. Hey, look, your man left. He ain't back. Nobody knows where he is. Let's get married. So what she did to distract herself was she, she began to weave, I forget what it was, some kind of flag or something, a tapestry. She would weave a tapestry during the day. Sorry, I can't go outside to talk to these suitors because I'm sewing my tapestry. And then at night, she would unravel the tapestry, waiting for her husband to return, <laughs> you know? So she was always weaving this tapestry. And that's Penelope's web. Basically, what these kinds of distractions will do to you, because this is what this was. This was an intentional distraction by the devil. He's sitting there teaching the people, and they come to distract him. And what they will do is they will put you basically endlessly to work on something that you're never going to finish. And you have to think about how the devil might be doing this, because he does it now. Delays of this sort, which do nothing but hinder the progress of the gospel, are wisely disregarded. Right? So what are the, the things? And you know, um, you, uh, this case has to be adjured, right? Somebody has to make a decision about this case. 
not me, you know. Jesus is basically saying, no, I don't. And it wasn't. It wasn't his office. It wasn't his place. And this was just a distraction. How many things are happening like that to you? Maybe your, uh, you know, close friends, relatives, maybe even your children, they bring all kinds of issues into your life that really you should say no, or your employer, or yourself, right? You, you just, do you decide to take up hobbies or whatever it is, interests, that, that all they do is distract you? You know, the television is, is um, uh, an absolute thief. Social media, an absolute thief when it comes to time. What are those things that are being brought into your life that are drawing you away and distracting you from the progress of the gospel? And those are things that you can rightfully ignore, no matter how urgent they seem. This seemed super urgent, right? This is important. We need to kill somebody. Right? <laughs> but Jesus, you know, he pays no mind. And with this difficult case, of course, Jesus is um, slow to speak even. Slow to speak. But now there is something here that th this is... Uh, some of the most profoundest moral truths are taught in this particular passage. And this is the, the, um, this is the truth, in essence, is how can you harmonize justice and mercy? Because God is just, but he is also merciful. And how do you bring those two truths together? And that's what Jesus deals with in this passage. So look at verse 7. So then they continued asking him. They, right? they keep on. So what, what should we do? This wasn't just one question. This woman is sitting here. Jesus is ignoring them. And they continue to hound him. He raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, went back to ignoring them. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. So he makes a statement. He says, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone first. Jesus is not, here. so several things Jesus is not doing. Jesus is not um, basically putting adultery in a category of sin that needs no punishment. He's not trivializing adultery. Remember, it's Jesus who in Matthew chapter 5, verse 28 says, but I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in her heart. Right, so when you when you're on your uh, phone looking at you know whatever Instagram male or female models whatever you want to look at right, and you're just I'm just looking, well you're lusting, and that's a violation of the seventh commandment. You're committing adultery in your heart. So Jesus doesn't uh, you know, sort of downgrade that commandment by doing this. 
So that's, he is not doing that. Jesus had a very high view of marriage. He cites Moses and says, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Right? He viewed that union as a one flesh union. So he has a high view of the law. He has a high view of marriage. He in no way is disparaging or discounting the nature of her sin by what he says. What he's doing is, remember he says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, no, I don't think, well, it might be. He says, one greater than Solomon is here, right? The wisdom that is unimaginable for a human is contained, was, uh, Jesus had it. You remember that story with Solomon where you have the two women who basically live in a brothel, right? They both have babies, and uh, one of them sleeps on her baby, swipes it with another lady's baby, and now they're standing before Solomon. And they want justice, and Solomon says, well, uh, this is in uh, 1 Kings chapter 3. Solomon says, bring me a sword. I'm going to cut the baby in half. You keep one half, you keep the other. And the lady who the baby belonged to said, nope, let her keep it. I don't know. Don't cut the baby in half. And the lady who the baby didn't belong to said, cut him in half. And Solomon knew who the mother was. Give the baby to the lady who didn't want to cut the baby in half. Right? And Jesus is putting that kind of wisdom into practice here to help these sinful men make a righteous decision. They wanted to ensnare him. They sought to convince and convert the crowds. But Jesus answers with uh, just (laughs) magnificent wisdom. In James chapter th- uh, 2, verse 13, we read these words. It says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. But mercy triumphs over judgment. What does he mean by that? Because this is, this is what Jesus is putting into play here. <clears throat> Listen to this comment. It is indeed a singular commendation of kindness and benevolence that God promises that he will be merciful to us if we be so to our brethren. Not that our mercy, however, however great it may be, shown towards men merits the mercy of God, but that God would have those whom he has adopted as he is to them a kind and indulgent father to bear and exhibit his image on the earth, according to the saying of Christ, be ye merciful, as your heavenly Father is merciful. Uh, one more text here. and I'll, uh, so, so that's the principle here. Jesus answers in wisdom, and his answer is, in essence, show this woman some mercy. But why does he say that? Because when you're trafficking among humans, we're all sinners. 
All of us are unrighteous and unjust. And what we have the tendency to do, as it says in Matthew chapter 7, we see the speck in our brother's eye, and oh, yeah, the guy's got a speck in his eye. And you've got, you know, you got enough log in your eye to heat Kathy's house for two years. <laughs> and uh, you show no mercy. And what Jesus does is he uses their own conscience to convict them. Let the person among you, right, who has no sin or who has not sinned in like manner, let him be the first to stone her, right? Because it had to be on the testimony of two or three witnesses, and the witness had to be the first one to throw the stone. That witness was not presented. So this, this whole ordeal is already unjust. They really don't want justice. What they're trying to do is trap Jesus. So he ex- just exposes their sinfulness. In Matthew chapter 7, the, the most twisted Bible passage in the world, Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. Why does Jesus say that? He says, for with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. Right? That, that, that's how you judge. The same way that you would want to be judged, with the same kind of justice and mercy and being able to make an appeal to uh, governing authorities and, and being able to plead for righteousness and for justice, that's the way that you want to be judged. Well, this woman wasn't being judged like that. There was no mercy displayed. He continues there. He says, why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye? And look, a plank is in your own. Hypocrite. And that was the issue with the religious leaders here. They were hypocrites. This was all an act of hypocrisy. This was just full of injustice. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience that they were adulterers, that they had sinned, that they were unjust, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And the words that they heard from the officers the day before must have been ringing in their ears. Right? No man ever spoke like this man. He shut them up. Right? They, were, they had stones. They could have stoned him if they wanted to, if they were mad enough. And this is what the devil does, right? The, the, the devil is the accuser of the brethren. And here, in his children, he is rebuked. And this is a very similar to you know, when Joshua the high priest in Zechariah chapter 3 has on these dirty rags right? He's covered in these dirty rags, and the devil is there accusing him. And then the Lord rebukes him. I rebuke you, Satan. And then Christ comes and robes, well, he is disrobed. These dirty robes are taken off, and clean robes are placed upon him, which represent a righteousness that is alien to him, and a crown is given to him. So they're rebuked, 
Now, what they leave, though. They should have stayed. Exactly what they were trying to do to that woman should have happened to them. They should have stayed there in the midst of the crowd and borne their shame and asked for forgiveness. But what do they do? Well, we've had enough of this kind of preaching. We're going home. (laughs) We're going to go home and be legalists, you know? (laughs) There's enough grace for one day. They should have borne their shame. They should have said to Jesus then and there, yeah, we have committed like sin, and we need forgiveness. And you seem like you're really smart. How do we get it? (laughs) But they leave. They want nothing to do with him. At the end of the day, their entire religious exercise is a means of trying to trap him so they can kill him. They are of their father, the devil. There is no righteousness, no light, no goodness in them. So Jesus is left alone by them, and the woman is in the midst, in the midst of the crowd, right? There are people still there that were listening to Jesus. The Pharisees and the scribes leave. So Jesus stands up, and he uh, he sees no one there. The Pharisees, scribes are left, but the woman is there. He says, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? She said, no, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus is, is, he's not addressing whether the woman should have been stoned or not, right? The law had established that, and if she actually committed adultery, her and the man who committed that sin should have been stoned. So he's not addressing that issue. Or what kind of punishment that she should have received either. What he's saying is, I don't condemn you, right? The Son of Man, why did he come into the world? He came not into uh, uh, John 3.16. For God uh, so loved the world that he sent his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. The, um, the way that J.C. Rowe put it, it, is, it wasn't his province. That wasn't his place to stone her or not stone her. He's simply saying, I don't condemn you. I, don't, I'm not, I didn't come to pronounce that judgment. But listen to what he does say to her. He doesn't say to her, you can leave here now Um, a righteous person. He didn't say that to her either. She's still a sinner. Whether, whether, Whether the act of adultery was committed or not, but what does he say to her? There's part, right? There's, in a sense, he's showing mercy, but then he says to the woman, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And Jesus didn't have that place. You, you have another instance in the Gospels where two brothers come up to him and say, hey, we're having a fight over our inheritance. Figure it out for us. And Jesus says, man, who made me a judge over you? That's not why he came. He didn't came to make this judgment upon this woman. 
But when she is being uh, tried falsely, he applies his wisdom, and what does he do? He shows mercy. He shows that he's gentle, he's long-suffering, he's full of pity towards sinner, towards sinners. Yet he's just because he says to her, "Sin no more." Yeah, mercy, grace, all of those things are displayed here. But then those virtues of righteousness, justice, living virtuously are also connected with his exhortation to her. We, we like, uh, because we're sentimental saps, we like the forgiveness where he says to her, go, right? Neither do I condemn you. Everybody loves that. But then he says to her, don't go back to living the way you were living. Don't do that. The Lord is gentle, the Lord is long-suffering, he's pitiful, but he is just, and he is true. And as Augustine puts it, he said that the Lord allows space for correction, right? Because he knows our frame, that we're but dust. And then he asks this question, but do you love the delay of judgment, which this woman, we don't know if she was saved, we don't know, right? You can assume. But when you read this story, is it that you love the delay of judgment more than you love the amendment of your ways? Because a licentious person can read this story and think to themselves, huh, you know, God will forgive the adultery, right? He's Look what he did to this woman. He said, neither do I accuse you. I can take that, you know, I'm going to take that, ver- I'm gonna, that verse I'll memorize. And that's mine. I'm, I'm going to claim that promise. <laughs> but remember, he says to her, sin no more. And so what is it, right? Because I, lo- I love this story myself. It's just an excellent display of mercy. But is it that I love the delay of judgment more than the amendment of my ways? And if we are believers, we will. I love that judgment is delayed eternally. I never have to bear it. But then because of the work in the spirit of the Spirit in our lives, we should also love amending our ways, being able to be conformed to the image of Christ, a transformation that occurs by renewing our mind and believing in God's promises, and putting off righteous virtues, and putting, on, putting off unrighteousness. So, as we close this passage, what a wonderful Savior we have. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy and your grace displayed in this text. And we ask that you would make us a people, Lord, who uh, love mercy, and justice. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.